Okay, we can let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 139, to this incredible text that Roger just read for us. Psalm 139 is a psalm that touches on a number of the attributes of God. It will reveal God to us in various ways. This morning I want to narrow the focus of our discussion to two attributes of God that I learned about when I was a child. Uh, I grew up in a family that had four children. I am the youngest of three sons, and then there was a daughter born fourth. So our ages currently are 54, 53, 52, and 50, okay? So that's the proximity of our ages. Two words had a dramatic impact in my life as a kid, and those words are these, dad's here or dad's home. All right, those two words meant something to me, okay? I grew up with a dad who was a disciplinarian, loving dad, but he, was, he didn't uh, deal well with the word no when it came from his children. That announcement that dad's here drew out of us two responses. One could be deep joy, love seeing my dad. The other one was radical reformation, okay? Change. Okay, because dad's presence meant that dad was going to know what was going on and he had the authority to correct it if it was wrong. Psalm 139 drives it to attributes of God. And I'm going to, I'm going to state them to you in just simple ways right now, okay? Two attributes or realities about the presence of God. God knows me and God is near to me. When you think about God, here's what you can say. God, you know me and you are near to me. All right, and those are two attributes or characteristics, if you will, of God that emerge very powerfully from this text, and they are attributes of God that call for a response. Okay, in the same way that when the echo went through the house, dad's home brought about change or joy, so it is true that when we understand that God is near and that God knows us, it will affect our lives in very specific ways. I want to deal, first of all, going through verses 1 through 6 with the very simple proclamation from verse 1. You know me. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And the idea here is to know in a personal and intense way. It's a word for knowing in the Old Testament that is frequently used to refer to the relationship between a husband and wife physically and intimate knowing of one another in the context of the marital relationship. Intimacy is the idea. Okay, it's not, it's not a distant Calculated knowledge is in a dictionary. It is a knowing of God and being known by God that is intensely personal. Okay? So at the beginning, David can say, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You have investigated my heart. You were completely aware of everything inside of me. So this knowing of God is first personal. Secondly, it is affectionate. I want you to drop down to verse 5 and then I'm going to come back up to the other verses. Verse 5. Here's what David can say. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Okay, now this is speaking about the knowledge of God. God, you have hemmed me in behind and before. You know what's going on in my past. You know what's happening in the present. You are aware of my future. These extremes, okay, are used to talk about the breadth of the knowledge of God. Okay, and also to say this, this knowing of God leads to him placing his hand upon us. 
Okay, what is that? That's an, as an affectionate gesture by which someone says to someone, I care about you. Sometimes it's a hand laid there to stabilize. Sometimes it's a laid there, hand laid there to comfort. Sometimes it's a hand laid there in prayer to bless and encourage. Okay, and so as David thinks about this awesome, infinite God, he also sees God as affectionate. You have laid your hand upon me. A profound and amazing statement that is known to us as the help of God. Now, verses 2 through 4 go on to talk about this knowledge of God, and it's, it's, it's stated in a number of extremes. Verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise, when I leave and when I get back. Okay, you are intimately acquainted with my ways. In the second half of verse 2, you perceive my thoughts from afar. I'm going to think about that. The thoughts come into your mind. It's getting ready to emerge as a word. And God's saying, I know what you're going to say. All right, he perceives our thoughts long before they are formed. He knows us that well. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. And what is that talking about? Talk about the beginning of the day. You get up, you go out, you get into your day, you come home and you lie down. What is that? That's the full encompassing aspects of the day that you have just lived. What is David saying? God, you're aware of all of that. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. That's a statement that astonishes me. That before the word escapes my mouth, and once it leaves my mouth, God isn't saying, I can't believe he said that. He is aware of what was going to come. He knows us that utterly, exhaustively, and completely. So I'll summarize it by this. this. The Lord knows what I do. He knows what I think. He knows where I go. He knows what I'm going to say. All right, that is an encompassing knowledge of God that at one level makes us uncomfortable, right? At one level, it's like, oh my word, He knows everything. There is nothing hidden from His sight. But that is also incredibly comforting because He knows how to minister to us and to serve us in our various circumstances. He is a God who knows all things. He possesses total and perfect knowledge about the past, the present, and the future. He is not a God who has ever had to learn anything. Think about that. A couple of illustrations of this knowledge from the Word of God. Psalm 145, talking about the stars, says this. It says, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding, listen to this, his understanding, his knowledge has no limit. There is nothing that is not open and accessible and visible to God. No difficulty coming your way that God is not aware of and did not allow. None. That's a truth that will kind of twist your mind a little bit too. There are no surprises to God. When he talks about the stars, it says that he, he, he determines the number of them. And he calls every one of them by name. Okay, now at one level we can say, all right, I can look at the, at the visible stars that are around me in the galaxy that I live in, the ones that are visible. And I'm amazed. God has every one of them named. But if you go and study a little bit about the number of stars, recent estimates push out in the range of 100 to the 23rd degree stars. Okay, 100 to the 23rd power stars. Okay, one, one uh, researcher from Harvard was studying stars that, that have recently 
come into view. They're called red dwarfs. Here's what he said. He said the abundance of these stars that aren't like the sun in their brilliance, they're red dwarfs. They're a little less shiny than the sun. He says the number of these stars, their abundance is very surprising. There are many more than we expected. Okay, folks, do you understand this? God has never discovered a star and said, oops, I forgot to name that one. God has never determined the number of the stars by counting them. His knowledge of them is instantaneous. When he shifts to thinking about stars, his comprehension of them is complete. Jesus uses another, uh, another description, or another description, I'm sorry, is used in Scripture. Visions of God. Okay, in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees wheels on the chariot. What, what does it say about the wheels? It says the wheels are full of eyes. What is that talking about? It's talking about this, this doctrine of the omniscience of God. The fact that God knows all things. That there is, He is present everywhere and sees all things. Revelation chapter 5. The Lamb appears with seven eyes. Speaking of what? Speaking of the perfections of the knowledge of God. There is nothing in my life that He is unaware of. Nothing in the world that we live in. Psalm 33 and verse 13 says this. He looks down from heaven and beholds all the sons of men. Now think about that. He looks down from heaven and sees all the sons of men. Every individual is acknowledged by God and known by God. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance. Where does God's knowledge look? His knowledge looks into the heart. He sees the very realities of who we are and what we're like. Now... After laying that out from this first few verses, okay, a couple practical applications because we don't want to study God simply to know that, okay, God knows all things. The question is, how does that truth settle into my life and affect or change me? I think this knowledge of, or this understanding of God's knowledge is going to affect us in two ways. There will be conviction and there will be comfort, okay? How does it, how does it comfort us? How does it reassure us? In verse 6, the psalmist says this. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too lofty for me to attain. This, this getting a hold of the fact that God knows me utterly and completely, that there is nothing in my life that has ever surprised him, the psalmist can say this. This thought is mind-blowing. Romans 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever gone to God and said, God, are you aware of this? Do you know about this circumstance in my life? And there are times, aren't there, when we pray that it seems like we're letting God know about things that He's not aware of? I think an understanding of the knowledge of God is going to affect how we pray. That prayer is not the means by which I enlighten God about things in my life that I would like to see Him change. No, prayer is us communing with God and enjoying His presence because we know that He is fully aware of every circumstance in our lives. We never counsel Him. And this truth is meant to settle on us, to bring comfort. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 10 when he's sending the disciples out into the mission field. He says this to them. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he says this. He says, aren't 
two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will and knowledge of your father. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. The argument moves from what? From lesser sparrows to your hair, which for most of us is more precious than sparrows. To what? To you as an individual. You know, what is he saying? The very hairs, God knows you so intimately and perfectly and instantaneously. He doesn't stand there and by process number the hairs of your head. He, if you ask him, he knows instantaneously like that. How do you and I learn things? We learn things, we would have to sit there and say, okay, this is going to be an unbelievable task, but I have one, two, right? By discovery, that's how we learn. How does God know things? God knows things instantaneously. Any question, any thought, it is immediately accessible to the mind and knowledge of God. Jesus wants that truth to be something that drives fear out of his disciples. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Let that drive out fear. Let that knowledge of God surround you. And let it give you comfort. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, I believe it's Andrew who goes and finds his friend whose name is Nathaniel. Nathaniel is invited to come into a close encounter with Jesus. He's the one that says, when he's invited to come and see Jesus of Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? But he goes, right? He walks into the presence of Christ, and Jesus looks at him and says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel looks at him and says, how did you know that? How did you know that? How do you know me? And here's what he says. Jesus says to him, when you were under the tree, I saw you. Now, it's not meant to, to be a profound illumination. It's just a simple revelation of the fact that what? Jesus, God, is fully aware of everything in his life. And what is his response? You are the son of the living God. The response of Nathaniel to the knowledge of Jesus Christ is worship. It's all. That's where the psalmist goes. He says these thoughts about the knowledge of God, knowing every part of my life, my getting up, my going out, my coming in, my laying down, everything in my mind, the words before they come out on my tongue, you know them completely. At one level, it is, it is deeply comforting to know that God sees every circumstance in your life. Psalm 56 and verse 8, the psalmist praying to God says, God, record my laments. Keep my tears in your bottle. What does he want to know? He wants to know that in the midst of his circumstance that God is aware. That God will keep a record and that in the end, God will bring justice and set the record straight. Why? He will not forget anything. His knowledge of your life is that utterly comprehensible. Let this truth sink into our hearts this morning. Let it prevent sin and let it also do this. Let it create and spawn worship in our hearts. That the God that we serve knows us completely. But this is also a truth that convicts. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now folks, I love knowing that God is near most of the time. I love God knowing that God knows all things most of the time. 
But there are times that I don't like that God is so utterly and completely aware of me. I don't like the fact that everything in my life is laid naked and and bare before Him. What this verse means and what this general understanding of the knowledge of God means is that with God there are no secrets, there are no unseen places, there are no nursed bitternesses that God is not aware of, there's no private computer viewing, there are no private phone calls, there are no private discussions, there's no private anger towards our mate, there's no private rebellion, young people, towards your parents. God knows everything. That should shake us, but then drive us into his presence to find grace and forgiveness. If it makes you uncomfortable, let God, in his knowledge, expose your heart so that you can draw near to him. And know Him in a personal and loving way. Sin cannot be successfully hidden from God. But the blood of Christ was shed to make forgiveness of all sin that God knows possible. He knows our sins. But when they are under the blood of Christ, they are gone. Psalm 103 says, He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. They are put behind His back. And for every repentant sinner, what is there? There is glorious grace of a God who forgives all the wrongs in our lives that he is fully and completely aware of. And there's nothing hidden. I don't have to keep secrets with God. We can confess all of our sins to him and enjoy the wonderful and powerful grace of his forgiveness. So the first truth that emerges out of Psalm 139 is this. God, you know me. You know me in a way that humbles me, but you know me in a way that causes me to say, that is fascinating and that is amazing. I want to rest in that, but I want to be motivated by it to live a life that honors and glorifies God. Verses 7 through 12. Second aspect or attribute of God that is revealed is His omnipresence. Okay, the omnipresence of God means this, that He is always present everywhere. Okay, always present everywhere okay he knows you he knows everything but he is also always present and everywhere and you understand why these are tied together in the psalm they go together the fact that god is there means that god knows okay but this idea of god's presence with you is meant also to lead us towards aspects of conviction and comfort verse 7 here's the way the psalmist says it he uses two questions two interrogatives that are really proclamations Okay, it's easy for us to say, okay, I wonder what the answer to that question is. I wonder what the answer to that question is. Well, what he's really doing is making statements about God. Where can I go from your spirit? What's the implied obvious answer? Nowhere. Where can I flee from your presence? And, and you start to, here's the question you have in your mind. Does it sound like David wants to get away from God? That he's uncomfortable with God? Or is this a psalm of praise where David is reveling in this uncomfortable truth about the fact that God is with me everywhere. I can't escape His presence. I believe there are interrogatives that, that make emphatic declarations about God. Okay, they affirm a profound truth of God. And that is that God's presence, first of all, is inescapable. And that God is everywhere at once. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, in no place is God's being confined or excluded. Okay? In no place is God's being confined. He can't be tied down to a location. And you think of this with pagan deities. Pagan deities were territorial. 
Okay, they covered a specific place. They were the God of a country, or of a location, or of a temple, or over a certain aspect of the created realm. Okay, but of God, what is David saying? You're present everywhere. Your presence is, in this case, inescapable. But it is also true that he is present everywhere, and in this sense, uncontainable. Solomon says it this way in 1 Kings 8. He says, will God really dwell on earth? The highest of heavens cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. What is, what is Solomon saying? Solomon is saying, God, I have built a place where your manifest presence will be revealed, where there will be a visible representation of you, but that is not all of you. So, so Solomon and David, they knew when the temple was built, it wouldn't house God. It would represent his presence, but it would not be the full extent of his presence. Jeremiah 23 states this in a very powerful way. It says this. God to the people of Israel. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? And here's kind of the, the exclamation. He says, do not I fill heaven and earth? Okay, don't I fill, don't I saturate the entire created realm? And this is a powerful statement. God's presence means that he is everywhere at once. And one of the greatest frustrations I think that we have as human beings is this. We get our schedule, our schedules chocked full, right? And we stress over the things that we have before us today. Why? Because ultimately, we're cut, we, in frustration, what do we say? I can't be in two places at one time. Okay, so when people are pulling you in and trying to get you to be here and trying to get you to be there, right, what do you sense? You sense building up with you a frustration that is related to what? To your limitations. Folks, think about this. God has never had that happen. He's never said to me, Tim, stop talking. I'm listening to this person right now. I think it's never happened. He is everywhere present, knowing all things, exhaustively present, filling all situations. That amazes me. That amazes me. What a glorious and amazing God we serve. Who never deals with limitations, who never deals with frustrations, who never faces circumstances that he can't handle, who never has people going to places where he can't protect them. You are never alone. Folks, you know what? There are times, what do we feel? We feel abandoned. We feel frustrated. We feel overcome. God has never had that feeling. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to draw near to you. He wants to come near. He's there, but he wants you to become aware of his presence. Do you see? See, I can tell you this. God is everywhere present. Fully, exhaustively, filling all the earth. That means in your house, in your bedroom, when you get down to pray, when you're at your work, in your hard place, in your struggle, facing temptation, He is there. He is near to those that are humble and contrite in spirit. Meaning, there's a difference in the sense of God's presence when you are open to what He has to say to you and when you're open to the joy of His presence. That's what the psalmist is saying in verse 6. It, 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 that's amazing. He just explodes with this, this impulse of joy and worship. Now, in verses 8 to 10, very familiar statements. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
In the depths here means in the Netherlands. In, it's Sheol. It's the grave. It's the abode of the dead. With the living and with the dead. God fills all of that. He is present. At death you do not escape the presence of God and the knowledge of God. It's not a release. He's there. He is there. So with God, what does David say? And the first thing David is saying is this. Distance is nothing to God. Okay? He is there in the depths. Verse 8 or verse 9. If I rise on the wings of the dawn with the rising of the sun and if I settle on the far side of the sea and in Israel the sea was on the west. Okay? So from the rising of the sun to the setting of it, what is David saying? God is in all of that. What is he using? He's just simply using two extremes to say that God covers everything in between. He draws parentheses and says God exhaustively is present in the midst of all of those things that are revealed. And I love what he says in verse 10. He says, in every place, even there, your hand will guide me. And your right hand, which is the hand of favor, will stabilize me and hold me fast. That God's presence is not simply to reveal his power. His presence is there to be a source of comfort for his children. So distance, it doesn't matter how, distance is nothing to God. Verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light, and the light become night around me, even in the darkness... Or I'm sorry, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. So distance is nothing to God. Because he's everywhere. Darkness is nothing to God. You know, we as human beings don't like darkness. Okay, in fact, we live in a world where it's very hard to experience darkness. Why? Because there's so much ambient light in our world, isn't there? remember a couple years back laying in my bed, looking around the bedroom before I'm falling asleep, and I'm looking at all the different, you know how, how many lights are now in, in your bedroom? I'm looking at the alarm clock, I look at my cell phone, I'm looking at my wife's cell phone, I'm looking at the, uh, the little smoke alarm on this thing with its green light, sometimes it's red and that keeps you awake. Okay, but all around, what do you have? You have light. We don't know what darkness is. Most of us can find our way around in our houses because it's not pitch black, it's not that darkness that you can feel. Okay, I remember when I was a child, uh, younger, younger, young person, going to Crystal Cave. I don't know if any of you have, we all drive past the sign and we're local so we never go, right? <laughs> I remember going into Crystal Cave, you get down in, and then the one thing they just love to do is make it so dark that you, you put your hand in front of your face. They turn off all lights and say, we're going to let you experience true darkness, which most of us have never experienced. A darkness that causes fear, a darkness that is disorienting. They turn off all the lights, and literally, it is, it is the, for many people, it's the first experience of utter darkness. Here's what David says. Even darkness that you can feel, that is so thick, that causes dread, that, that, that arouses within us fear and, 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 a, and, a, and a discomfort. Here's what David says. Even the darkness is as light to you. Now, here's a, a verse in the Psalms that amazes me. It says, you shine in the light. Okay? That's what it says about God. God is so brilliant and so bright and so revealing and comprehensive in his presence. In the darkness he shines, in the light he shines. And so David settles back in this. He says, if I said it's going to cover me, it's light to you. 
It may be dark to me, but he has night vision. He sees everything. And folks, what that means is there is nothing in my life that is hidden from God. Daniel 2 and verse 22, he reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what hides in the darkness. Light dwells with him. That's what Daniel says. When God is present, what happens? Everything is exposed. Nothing is covered. All things are visible. That is comfortable. That is profoundly uncomfortable. Nothing in my life, no circumstance in my life where I can say about God out of sight, out of mind. Never true about God. And then this beautiful text, 13 through 16, which talks about uh, the, 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 the progress of an embryo to a human being in utero. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What is he talking about? He's talking about the activity of God in the shaping of an individual from the very beginning to the point of birth. That God is intimately involved. Now, because we live in the modern age, we read this psalm, and what do we think? Oh, we can see that now. right? Because we have ultrasound, we have cameras, we can get them in there, we could, we could see things that are amazing. But in the ancient world, that, that wasn't the case. The womb was a dark place you couldn't see there. There was no illumination. There was a wondering of what was going on. There was a, a feeling of, of, uh, of that, that, that baby quickening, right? And, and moms could feel, and, and, and by that feeling, but what was it? It was a groping. It was a, I think this is this part, and this is this, and, and all, which is powerful and wonderful. But what is David saying? God, you were there. You were active in that. Nothing is hidden, verse 15 says, from your sight, my frame, when I was made in the secret place, verse 15, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. And I love what he says next. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, folks, let that settle in. Everything about my life, my story was written by God because he was there and when he was there, he had complete knowledge of everything in my life. Let that truth settle in. God has intimate knowledge and concern that extends to individuals and the details of their lives. It's a truth that's affirmed over and over throughout the pages of Scripture. The presence of God guaranteeing those things. The infinite knowledge of God guaranteeing those things. Let that settle on your life. There's nothing about you that God didn't draw together and make and create. It is part of his glorious and grand design. How does this truth about the presence inescapable and everywhere at once presence of God affect us? What's the practical application? Well, in verse 17, David responds to this. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And I think it becomes very, very apparent that as David thinks over the knowledge of God and the presence of God in his life, the effect on his life is one of incredible comfort. He starts thinking about how well God knows him and how much God knows him and the detail of God's knowledge of him and the presence of God with him. It starts blowing his mind. 
He says, if, 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 if I was to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. All right, think about that. Like, really, David? <laughs> He's giving a figure of speech to say God's thoughts towards us cannot be counted. He is so comprehensively aware of everything in your life by His divine and powerful presence. That it should, as we meditate upon it, it should fill us with a, a sense of joy and worship. I love what he says at the end of verse 18 because you wonder what this means. He says, when I awake, I am still with you. What's the awakening part here? I mean, one commentator made this speculation. He says, if you try to count the, the sands of the shore, what's going to happen? You're going to fall asleep. Can't do it. It is going to be exhausting. If you try to get your arms around the breadth of God's knowledge of your life, His understanding of your life, you, you're going to get really tired and you're going to fall asleep. And when you awake, what does David say? He says, when I awake, I'm still with you. I go to bed. I fall asleep. I wake up at whatever hour it is. And what's still true? God is there. Here's what he says to us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, I can't. Because I am everywhere present. The psalmist begins to rest in this. This nearness of God for believers is a unique nearness that causes the psalmist to say, when I awake, I am still with you. I mean, I am with you in a way that other people aren't with you. I am with you in an intimate way. I understand you. I know you. You know me. We interact. We relate. We love. Psalm 23, 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? All right, that, you are with me. You see what the psalmist is doing? When I awake, where am I? I'm still with you. His presence is inescapable. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Okay, folks, so here's what's true. There's a sense in which God's presence is that when I'm awake, I'm with Him. But if I really want to know God personally and intimately in a way that impacts my daily life, I need to draw near to Him. I need to be sure that I'm keeping a clean record in regards to my sin. Hebrews 13.5 says this. It says, keep yourselves from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The writer of Hebrews responds, I will not be afraid. Now what happens? What happens is this. We tend to trade the presence of God, the understanding of that, for the temporary benefit of security and riches. Okay? And what is the psalmist rejoicing in? The psalmist is rejoicing in the fact that you are with me. And that is what comforts me. And that is what encourages me. That's what blesses me. Matthew 28, verse 20. As the Lord sends his disciples out into their mission field. He says, go into all the world. Go everywhere I tell you to go. And lo, verse 20 of 28. Lo, I am with you always. Even unto the end of the age. I am with you in all places. I am with you at all times. And Marie, this is the thought that came to me as I was studying through this text, okay? That verse, that the presence of God is with you. As you go in obedience to this call to fulfill the Great Commission, His promise is this, I am with you. Okay? Let that, let that devour fear, let that devour anxiety. You're not going, you can't, 
You can fly to the other part of you know, the second part of the world, that's the other half, okay, the far side. And guess what? He's there. He's there. And as we walk in obedience, His presence is manifested. And that presence of God is the greatest treasure we can have. It is the greatest source of comfort and encouragement that we can have. What do we do? We tend to get distracted with temporal benefits and blessings. And can money make you feel secure? What's the honest answer? Can money make you feel secure? Yeah, it does. But can it make you feel secure as God does? You see, there's, there are things money can't buy, right? And that's what, in Hebrews 13, that's what he's saying. You can't buy life. You can't buy health with money. The nearness of God is what should drive fear out of our lives. So it's, it's this idea of God's knowledge and presence brings comfort to his children, but it also brings deep conviction. It, it means this. It means that God perceives all things. One writer said, how differently would we live if we knew that God was watching? Can remember we were visiting my uh, brother and sister-in-law years ago. This is probably, I'm going to say like 19 years ago. I'm trying to think of my daughter Erica's age. And we went through a period of time during this visit. We were like, hey, where's Erica? Like, kind of misplaced her. Okay? No. Just a sidebar is that has never happened to God. God has never said, you know how we scrunch up our foreheads because we face imponderables? And I was like, huh. But said, God has never done that. Ever. He's never been puzzled by what you said. He's never been puzzled by what you experienced. Trying to figure, where's Erica? Finally, we found, I can only tell the story because she's not here. We finally found her. She had found mom's purse. Okay, she's three or four years old. And she had uh, found soft stuff in there. Lipstick. Okay. And she had gone to a secret place with that lipstick because she had things she wanted to do with that lipstick. All right. She had taken off her clothes and was coloring herself with lipstick. <laughs> and she was having a great time. Until. She was, I remember she was behind a recliner. Never forget it. Right. Everything's cool. Everything is fun and delightful until, you know, mom's there. Dad's there. I remember in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an English class with Juan Vasquez, who was the strictest teacher I ever had, bar none. He struck fear into all of our hearts. He was from Ecuador. And he had a very interesting accent. There was a kid in our, church, in our, uh, in our class named Greg Sterner. So Greg Sterner decided that he was going to, since Mr. Vasquez wasn't in the class, he was late getting there, he was going to get up and imitate Juan Vasquez. Okay, the door to the classroom is there, and there's a window in the door. Okay, so Gray's going, he's doing a great job, and we are dying. All right, and all of a sudden, we don't think it's funny anymore, and he doesn't know why. And he's still, what happened? well, we saw Mr. Vasquez, and what, that, that presence, that knowledge, it was transformational. Okay, for Greg, it was not transformational until he turned, and then he, this, immediately, everything changed. Why? Because of that presence. And folks, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Why do, why do we fall into sin? Why do we fall into habits? Why do we fall into talking in ways that we shouldn't? Why do we fall into attitudes that we shouldn't have, looking at things? Why do we fall into that stuff? You know why? We forget that. That He is near. And He knows. That truth 
drives the psalmist, and I, I don't have time to go through it, but in verses 19 through 22, it drives the psalmist to say, God, I want wickedness to be away. Meaning the wickedness that's out there, I want you to do away with that. But verse 23, here's what he says. He goes to God now and he says, God, you know everything. You are everywhere. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. He's saying, God, I don't just want you to look at me externally. I want you to do your work in here. Change me here. Change me as we sing from the inside out. Folks, your problem isn't what happens out here. Your problem is what happens here. Out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. And so the psalmist goes to God. He says, God, search me and try me. Know my heart. Test my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me towards you. And when you find it, lead me in the way everlasting. What does that mean? It's, it's a picture of the gospel. When you can say, God, expose my sin. Show me so that I can what? I can repent of it. And flee to you and enjoy knowing you know everything. And enjoy knowing that you are everywhere present at all times. Let this truth about the knowledge of God, about the presence of God, convict you, but lead you into the greatest comfort that you could ever experience. But see, that's what the gospel does. It's what the gospel does. Wondering at God's presence, wondering at God's knowledge will eliminate... Things that displease him, but will drive them out. Think about who God is. The Apostle Peter, when he first met Christ, I believe it's Luke chapter 4 or 5. Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, follow me. And we know what Peter says to him. Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Meaning that the presence of Christ, His holiness, was convicting to Peter. Right? Later, Jesus says, hey, by the way, I'm going to go to the cross and die to pay the price for your sin. What does Peter say? Lord, I, I can't imagine life without you. Wow. That's a shocking transformation. Now, we know he gets it wrong. But after his sin of denial of Christ, what happens? Jesus comes back to him. Same place, Sea of Galilee, all-knowing, all-loving, ever-present God. Walks up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter and his friends are out in the boat fishing. And what is the, once, when, when Jesus calls out to them and Peter says, that's the Lord. What does this sinful man, the fallen Peter, do? He jumps in the water and swims to shore. He wants to be the first one there to find grace in this time of need. He's not afraid of the presence of God anymore. Why? Because the presence of God is doing what? It's searching him and knowing him and understanding his thoughts. And when, he, when they're understood, he says, God, clean me. Clean me. I love you. I mean, that's the heart of a believer. They love the presence of God, even though at times it's convicting. But the aim of that presence of God and that knowledge of God is what? God wants to convict you so deeply that you repent of your sin and flee to him and find comfort that will blow your mind. That will cause God to, Wow. That's what the psalmist is doing here. It's a response of worship. It's a response of petition. God, know me so thoroughly that I can enjoy this truth. It won't intimidate. It will bless. It will comfort and encourage. It will help. That's the heart of God for us this morning. Father, thank you that you know us and that you are with us. Thank you that you are a God who knows and a God who is near. Father, I pray that this truth of your presence would expose us for who we really are.